Well, today on the broadcast, I have a great friend. I have to say, first of all, Dr. Charles Dyer is older than me. I just like that for the record. When I was a young Greenhorn student at Dallas Theological Seminary, I had this eager, enthusiastic Old Testament professor that bedazzled me. I sat in class back in the day when we had white marker boards, and Dr. Dyer was not afraid to try things. And he had these little magnetic, kind of like flannel graph on steroids devices he'd stick on the wall and he'd talk about the Old Testament. He was so excited about teaching the Bible, and that would have been circa 1981, 2? Yeah. Yeah, you, you, about you right. caught me early there, Michael. Yep. I did. I did. And you became one of my favorite professors in God's great kindness and sense of humor. We both ended up at the Moody Bible Institute. You were the provost there, and I came along and served with you for about four years. You left Moody and went to Arizona, where you semi-retired, but still continued to land in the book. And then you worked with the local church there and tired from there. And now you're full-time doing what you love to do, teaching the Bible and taking people to Israel. Is that right? That's right. In fact, thank God, though, in his humor, I retired from the church at the end of February of 2019 to do more trips to Israel. And COVID. (laughs) And COVID hit. I I lost five trips to Israel that year. In fact, when Israel closed down, we were sitting with our bags packed, waiting to be picked up and taken to the airport. So Really? uh, Yeah. But the good news out of it all is, you know, if I couldn't go to Israel, I decided, okay, the book I've always wanted to write was about Israel. So I spent the next year writing this book rather than getting to actually travel there firsthand. So we're talking about Charlie's newest book called Experience in the Land of the Book. I've led, I don't know how many tours, but uh, the first time I went uh, with a different person, and the second time I knew Charlie loved Israel, and uh, he had a window open. I was serving up in the northern Virginia Washington, D.C. area at a wonderful church called Emmanuel Bible. And Charlie, he said, Michael, it's paint by numbers. I can teach you how to do this. So you don't have to have me every time. And and you did. And I'm grateful for the way you taught me and continue to. But we have our tour folks buy the book and put a little viral on it to take notes and take it to Israel with them. But let's talk about the first book, The Christian Traveler's Guide to the Holy Land, and then why you wanted to amp it up four or five times as as involved as that first book, Charlie. (laughs) Yeah, you know, in fact, and there's a new version of The Christian Traveler's Guide that's going to be coming out next month, but that book was to help people with their head. You go to Israel and there's so much, it's just running past them that we felt like they needed to have some idea of prepare. You know, what, you know, the next morning, what are we going to go see? And in a brief snapshot, what is it I'm supposed to know about the Bible from this spot? And it helped. But mm. my only problem was it, it helped the head. But Israel's also about the heart mm. and about that experiential part. And and I always wanted to have something that would be a companion to it that would help people understand the emotional impact and the visual impact that we couldn't fit into that uh, smaller book. And so this experiencing the land of the book is is intended to do that. It's a uh, trip in a box, I guess I'd call it. Hmm. It's trying to cover all of the emotional impact in that one book so that if they've been to Israel, they can relive the experience, or if they've not been to Israel, they can prepare, or for some, they'll never get there, and this Mm -hmm. can help them. You know, it's interesting. Uh, What would you say was the first um, reason you went to Israel, and then there was a switch, obviously, that went off in your head and said, okay, this is my passion, love, whatever word you want to use. I would call it Dyer's addiction, but... <laughs> it, it pretty much. I, I, I knew Diet, I wanted... Coke, Diet Coke in Israel, Charlie you, Dyer in a box. Yeah, <laughs> you, you just captured me. Uh, the, the first trip, I knew I wanted to go, and it, it fit into my doctoral studies. 
it was on the, the to-do list. I'd had a professor mm-hmm. who told me I needed to go, so I was going to go. And when I went, I fell in love with the land. I can tell you things that are as close to total recall as I've ever had in any experience in my wow. life, where I sat down and ate lunch in a place called Deer Devon that I've never been to in 41 years, but I could take you to the exact spot where I sat and ate lunch that day. And I, I recognized not only did it change my life, uh, but I wanted to be able to change other people's lives the same way. And it did. It just ignited that passion that 41 years later is still going strong. Wow. What, what year was it? It was 1982. 82. Okay. And do you remember who your guide was when you went? Oh, yeah. A fellow named Jim Monson, who was teaching at then the Institute of Holy Land Studies. He'd yeah. actually stopped teaching full-time, but he was willing to do our group because it was a group of three seminaries. And so and, wow. uh, he took us around, and then he had free days, and he said, well, if you want, we can do little extra projects. I did every project he had. Of course you did. Of course you did. It was just truly remarkable. He was the one who ignited that passion. Well, in, in this series on In Context, we have you, we have Carl Laney, who I know is a good friend of yours as well, and Samuel Smaja, kind enough to give me some time. And, and what to, to bring to our In Context audience, because you always hear Christians say, I want to go to the Holy Land, but... Or I want to go to Holy Land. It's on my bucket list. And you and I have done enough tours. You have done exponentially more than me. What is it, Charlie, about people? They'll go to Breckenridge. They'll go to Florida. They'll go to the Bahamas. They'll go to the state national parks. What is the pause and the check in their gut? The Middle East scares them or I'm not sure. I want to go, but. You just hit the number one reason they're afraid. The news comes on and they'll report another shooting, another bombing. It'll be someplace people have never heard of, but they'll end by saying, and this is so-and-so reporting from Jerusalem. And they go, this trip goes to Jerusalem. I could get blown up there. <laughs> uh, and they have no context where these other places are. But that fear is the biggest hurdle. I think then beyond that, it's the exotic nature. They'll go to Breckenridge, but uh, Breckenridge is still similar to wherever they live. You know, They're, they're mm-hmm. going to be able to find a hamburger joint there that's Reminds them of home, but when they get to the Middle East, they think exotic food, exotic, you know, am I going to be able to make it? My dad, I finally got him to go to Israel. I kid you not, he and mom brought an entire suitcase full of snacks (laughs) because he knew he was going to starve to death. (laughs) Well, people are interesting, and, you know, um, you and I have different palates. I know you're not a big fan of fish. (laughs) I love the the so-called St. Peter's fish, Cindy and I do. But we joke about we can hummus our way across the Middle East because we love hummus. We love the salad bars. And I tell people, it's great food. But there is a burger in the Jerusalem Quarter, the Entrecote Burger. I'm sure you've had it before. It's the best burger on the planet. (laughs) Well, let's talk about the book. It was the tour. I think it was the one I went before you took me. And uh, we went to Arbel talk about where you ate your sack lunch. I remember walking up that mountain and it was before it was a state park mm-hmm. and it was a slog to get up there. They didn't have the roadway and we got up there and it was a pretty clear day and it was the epiphany for me. I mean, it was like, oh my word. And someone, I don't know if it was that tour, but later on they used the phrase, the Jesus triangle mm-hmm. and that what 60 to 70%, what would you say yeah. of Christ's ministry? Is in that tiny little area on the northern yep. tip of the lake, yeah. And, and you got to wonder, extra biblically, I got to believe Jesus and the disciples walked up there at some point. It's too, not only romantic, it's strategic, because you could see all of that area. And uh, of course, the scripture doesn't record everything he did. But you stand up there looking down going, why this peace? Why did God 
in eternity past planned to send his son there. What do you think? I go back to Isaiah 9, and I think they shouldn't have been surprised because God said the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali is where his light would shine. Zebulun's where Nazareth was located, Naphtali's along that edge of the Sea of Galilee. So God gave him plenty of hints, but it's a reminder to me that God doesn't view life through our lens. We think bigger's better. Jerusalem would have been better, and Rome would have been even better, the bigger city. Uh, God says, now I'm going to take him to an out-of-the-way place that was even despised by the Jewish people. You know, can any good thing come out of Nazareth and you know, Galilee? And God said, that's where I'm going to display more of the uh, miracles of my son than anywhere else. I just take that home and say, I need to view life from God's perspective because it's so easy to fall into the world's mold. So I don't know if that's why God had him go there. Uh, I do know Isaiah 9 mentions it, and I do know that there's a great life lesson every time I go there to remind myself what's truly significant and strategic from God's perspective. You and I share the same conviction that the Word is the authority, the Word is the foundation for these, our faith expression, all we, all we need for a life of faith. And we can sew together the promises of the land, we can sew together the call of Abraham, Mount Moriah. I still remember, um, and I'm pretty sure it was with you, when we did the rabbinic tunnel for the first time, hmm. And they have those very helpful models underground where they show these like, you know, it's almost like a model. You can push a box in and out and show what Mount Moriah would have been. And, you know, seminary student, you know, I probably worked on my demon at this point. And I'm sitting there and they go, this is where Abraham offered Isaac. And I went, wait, Mount Moriah, this is where we are. And again, dumb me, the obvious yeah. thing. This is the very spot that Abraham wandered around, not knowing where he was going, right? Mm-hmm. And the Lord leads him up to Mount Moriah. He puts a knife to his son's throat on a stone altar with wood and fire ready to burn him after he killed him. And God stops him, obviously. That's where the temple complex would be built. Yeah. Part of it is, as Americans, we skip over people names and place names because they don't mean much to us. And when you have that aha moment, you suddenly realize, wait, wait, that connects with where I am right now. That connects with this. It is revolutionary. What you discovered there, I think I, I would say the same thing. That's when it made sense to me, putting those pieces together. And, and that happens just over and over again, uh, multiple times every day during a trip. Talk to me a little bit about changes you've seen. One that I've talked about, I think, with both Carl Laney and Samuel Smaja has been the City of David because on one of my early trips, the docent, you know, as you wait there for your group to go through the so-called wet walk, he, you know, kind of said, hey, let me show you something. And he was very kind and took me down where they had just started excavating, like building a mine shaft. And he said, we think these steps were the bottom of David's palace. And I'm kind of going, okay, is this kind of a, you know, is he hoodwinking me? And lo and behold, they are. And lo and behold, the city of David I mean, it's probably 20 times the size from the first time I went down there. What about you? What are some things you've seen over 40-plus years of going that have just grown exponentially, not just the archaeological aspect, but what that's how the Bible demonstrates everything in the Scripture is true, and you can dig and find even more. You don't need to dig, but if you dig, you're going to find out the Bible's true. The City of David has to be at the top of my list as well. In fact, this last two trips I did, we had a few days in between, and they arranged for us to go and have a private tour of what they're doing now, the most recent excavation. So we were in where they were literally 
filling the buckets with dirt and pulling it down. And they, and they said they're about uh, 25 to 50 yards digging from both ends to break through and have the whole roadway from the Pool wow. of Bethesda all the way up to the Temple Mount area done. It's remarkable. that My first time there, I got to walk through Hezekiah's Tunnel, mm-hmm. uh, which was up to about my neck water-wise. <laughs> <laughs> it was because it hadn't been cleaned out. Uh, it was it was remarkable and, and uh, disgusting at the same time. Yeah, uh, yeah, and to to see what they've done, and then to find out they you know the, the dry Canaanite tunnel, and then the way that they got down. Each time I was there, they kept changing the diagrams because they'd find something new. Now the rest of Israel, two things keep sticking in my mind. One is how much more is available than used to be. You know, mm-hmm. tell Dan. I uh, used to walk oh. along the stream and walk across the hill, and that was about it. And now you see the high place that they've uncovered, the gate complex, not only from the time of Abraham, but the uh, or just after him, but the gate complex then from the Israelite monarchy period. I'm amazed at all the things that they're making more accessible and more visible that were never there. If I flip on the other side, the downside, there are a lot more people now yeah. and a lot <laughs> much more traffic trying to get to those places than there used oh, to be 40 years ago. Yeah, the last time uh, pre-COVID, I think I went down uh, to the pools of Siloam. I was uh, quote cursing quote in Christianese, going, "Lord, I'll never come back here again." <laughs> I, it was just the most insufferable thing. The old city has lost its luster for me. But let's talk about Tel Dan a little bit because friends that have never been there, I explain a Tel as layer upon layer. J. Carlaney gave a helpful illustration. How would Doctor Dyer explain a Tel to someone who's not seen one? It starts out as a hill. You know, cities were built strategically. There's usually a, a hill you could build defensively on. There's a water supply, and there's a, usually a, a road nearby that gives a reason for somebody living there. But eventually that city gets destroyed. An earthquake, fire, and some enemy comes through. But the water supply and the roadway and the hill are still there. And so eventually people come in, they level down what's been destroyed, and then build on top of it because it's still strategic. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. over time— that could happen uh, in the case of Megiddo over 20 times. The city was destroyed and rebuilt. Is it down to is it down to 28 now? I heard 28 layers. I, I, I I've lost count. I remember the last okay. time I heard it was it was in the 20s, and uh, I don't remember the exact number. But but uh, amazing to me is that that st- it starts taking on that str- well a distinctive shape, and so you're driving along, and go that's got to be a tell there. That's you know, it's a hill with a curved side, flat top. And you don't know how many layers are there, but you know that's a likely a place where at some point in something in the Bible happened and someone lived there. So a tell is an artificial hill on which multiple layers of cities have been built over time. So, so help me out, though, and again, help our listeners out, because they may not understand this. When they dig down, and Megiddo is a great one, because when you stand up in one of those overviews where the alleged would you call that a Canaanite sacrificial altar that they discovered, or? Yeah, I, I think that's a high place okay. sacrificial, probably probably for animal sacrifices, but it was a sacrificial okay. altar at the high place that you're looking down. Uh, yeah, and realize how much how much higher you are than it is. At some point, people are run off. The people groups who inhabited there are displaced, killed, enslaved, whatever. It lays in ruin for a period of time. The stones fall over from just, you know, wear, erosion, earthquake, weather. And then someone, other, another group comes in and rebuilds on top of this rubble. Is that a fair, a fair way of describing it? That's a fair way of describing it. Sometimes they'll reuse a few pieces, you know, if, if there's a wall or something that's it's worth incorporating into their new building. But otherwise, yeah, they, they try and level it out and start over. So when we talk about Tel Dan, it's a very 
different tell because I, I tell people if they've ever been to lowlands of Colorado and hiked around where those springs are and the you know it's kind of, initially you feel like you're in Colorado and it's the water's beautiful and fresh and cool and then all of a sudden you make a few curves and you come out and you see a very different area why did dan end up there because help me out dr dyer they weren't supposed to go there right they weren't supposed to go there the god gave them land actually pretty nice land around Beit shemesh all the way out to about tel aviv it's lowland but the danites were hiding up in the hill country and they looked down at this nice broad plain and said but the philistines are there we can't take it so they got a group of men and said let's go find some other piece of land and i tell people i i know i'm getting old when the music I grooved on as a youngster is now the stuff you listen to on elevators. But the music that they had to be singing is It Can't Be Wrong When It Feels So Right. You know, you light up my life. Uh, these these guys come back and go, we just found the perfect spot. It's got water. It's got safety. It's There's no one causing any problems. No Philistines there. And they went up and took this piece. And so Dan became the one tribe that had the place God gave them and the place they chose for themselves. And the downside was they didn't know over the time horizon that they were getting away from the Philistines and, and encountered the Syrians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks, because everybody came through that funnel that was mm-hmm. formed from Mount Hermon and the desert, and Dan was the bottom of the funnel where everybody came through. Now, you mentioned earlier in your comments about Tel Dan and the altar. That's one of those amazing, because you're walking along in this it's very beautiful trails, and you come up, and all of a sudden you see this plateau, and they've done a really nice job with extruded, probably aluminum, to frame out the dimensions of what they think was the area. There's a rock formation there that's not natural. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's obviously been constructed. Uh, tell us about this uh, altar. What, what do we see at this high place, Charlie? It's a counterfeit, is the, the best word for it, because God always said when you construct an altar, use it of uncut field stones. And the base of this altar that they've uncovered, you look at it, and it's made of cut stone. So it was intended to actually look a lot like the temple in Jerusalem. It had a water source, it had the altar, a building behind with steps leading up, probably had a holy place and a holy of holies. But if you look carefully at the details, it's not constructed the way God said, and certainly wasn't supposed to be built there, because God said, there's one place where I'll have you worship. That was Jerusalem. To the altar is one of the first hints that this is not kosher. It's not supposed to be here. We also have another altar like that besides the one in, in Jerusalem. We have Dan, Ai, Bethel. Help me out. You're the oh, Old yeah. Testament expert. When uh, Jeroboam split the kingdom and took the northern kingdom, he built two worship centers, one at the very southern end of his kingdom at Bethel, the other one at the very northern end at Dan. And I like how the writer says it, and this became a sin to Israel because they went to worship, even says as far as the one at Dan. You know, that's They're going to the northern end of the kingdom to worship there, but they did. Uh, and his he wanted to do that to keep people from going back to Jerusalem and because uh, he knew that at some point, basically, I think he thought, Rehoboam can't be that stupid. You know, he's going to sit there with boxes of dates as we come saying, welcome back. It's good to have you. And, and so he, he builds these fake altars, these these alternative worship sites to keep yeah. people from going back. You mentioned Jeroboam, and uh, again, that's another one of these continual ahas for me. And when you study the the monarchy and the divided kingdom, and going back to Prophet Samuel's admonition to Israel, you don't want to be like other nations. You do not want a king. No, we want to be like other nations. And of course, we have the Saul escapade, and then David's chosen. Um, and the monarchy is a fascinating part of our Bible. But, you know, people skip over the 
First and Second Kings, Chronicles, uh, you know, Samuel. It's too hard to read. There's too much going on. But when you're standing, you just mentioned Jeroboam there. It all happened right there. Yeah, that's actually the fun part. It's I, I think people struggle with the Old Testament because they don't have a knowledge of the geography or these places. It'd be like trying to learn how to play chess, but never having seen a chessboard. It sounds complex, but then when you stand at the places and read the accounts, you suddenly realize this makes perfect sense. We have the same kind of jealousies and motivations and greed, and you read them into geographical context, and the Bible just opens up. When you take groups now, and I know you know you think through this because you're a very critical, strategic thinker. When you begin a tour and it's a new group and you've done it again and again and again, but you're still a learner, I know you, you like to learn and expand and you don't stop. What do you think of a person? Okay, they're coming from the West, they're coming from XYZ Church, and they're going to go on this tour. What do you want the outcome to be when they get back on that last bus ride to Tel Aviv to get to Ben-Gurion and go home? What do you want them to walk away with? I want them to walk away saying, wow, I didn't realize the Bible had all this stuff in it. I'm going to go back and start reading Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, and maybe they'll get to the prophets. I'd, you know, that's where I'd ultimately like them to go. But <laughs> I'll, I'll settle for having them reread the historical parts because it'll make sense to them now. Again, I think if they get excited about the Bible and reading the Bible, especially the history and the Gospels, the historical parts, I will have succeeded because to get them into the Word of God, and have them now start looking and, and realizing these places are real places and start looking up the ones that they don't know on a map and relate them to some place they have been that's nearby. Uh, that was successful. Let's say in the last, I'll give you a year or two, what has been a surprise for you personally when you've gone to a site or maybe even a passage that you connect with a site and you're teaching it or you're going, whoa, I missed that. Lakeish, I think, is one of the uh, most recently. They're redoing that site, but every time I go back, I keep forgetting all the things that had happened there. You know, Lakeish was one of the five cities that joined with Jerusalem to attack Gibeon. And this last trip, it just dawned on me, this place was a massive place in the time of Joshua. And it, it was it was a significant site that I always associate it with Jeremiah or with Nebuchadnezzar, the fall of mm-hmm. you know Jerusalem to Babylon, to, and to realize the, the role it played in history. And then, actually, I tied it in with Micah chapter 1. Uh, Micah says it was the beginning of the place where Baal worship ended up coming into the southern kingdom of Judah. So just being at that site and recognizing the, the role it played, I, I probably knew some of it, but I'd never put it all together before. And that was uh, put, a, put a spring in my step this last trip. Now, again, for folks that haven't been, where is Lakish? In, in the Shvela. It's, it's in the low foothills between Jerusalem and the, uh, the coast. Uh, it's the front okay. door to the hill country of Judah. And uh, both Sennacherib of Assyria and Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon recognized to take Jerusalem, I've got to take the front door and the back door. And so they captured all these major cities before they could get to Jerusalem. It was strategic in its location and in its history. What I'd say is if I knew modern history— if Lee was going to take Pennsylvania, he knew Gettysburg was the place he had to mm, okay. had to finally capture. That's what Lakish was to uh, the kingdom of Judah. One of our friends, Ronnie Cohen, talks about the Via Maris a lot. You talk about the International Highway, I think, the King's mm-hmm. Highway. When I asked you earlier about the significance of why God would send Messiah, why he chose the Jew in that particular geographic location, talk about the significance of this so-called International Highway, King's Highway, Via Maris. If people look at where Israel is in location, you have the 
the continent of Africa, you have the, you have the European continent, you have Asia, and the one place where they all intersect is that land bridge that that extends between them all, and that's where Israel's located. So when we talk about God sending Israel to the promised land, if I'd have been God, I'd have picked Switzerland. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'd have been thinking beauty. But God, I think, was was being strategic. He said Wait, to you Israel— you don't like cold. You don't like snow. <laughs> I, yeah, I know, but June June in Switzerland's okay. Oh, okay. I, <laughs> uh, but God puts them in the, in the most threatened place. Every enemy that was getting strong— wanted to take that land bridge on their way to the next continent. Every enemy that was weak wanted to have the land bridge as a defensive barrier. Israel's sitting there with all these nations wanting this land, and God says, that's the place I want you. And and it was Jim Monson who actually said, it's the testing ground of faith. God said, mm-hmm. that's where I'm putting you now. I'll teach you how to trust me. Well, and again, for folks that haven't been, you have the Mediterranean Sea on on one side, and you basically have three enemy uh, uh, budding groups around you if you don't make this little fingerling of land secure, well, you can't. You're going to have to trust me as your God and King to do it, or it's not going to work. Um, talk, talk to me uh, again for folks that aren't familiar with the land. I'm always, I love the illustration of Connecticut or New Hampshire. Give them dimensions. What's the widest east-west, north-south, and the narrowest east-west? And it depends on what you count for Israel. But the biggest piece, New Jersey, is the the total land area of Israel today is the size of New Jersey. Uh, But what most people don't realize is uh, most of that is the wilderness. It's the midbar, the desert in the southern part of Israel, which is even outside the land allotment. Uh, the, The part that God gave Israel, the inhabited part from from the Sea of Galilee down to Jerusalem area, it's about 75 miles. At the widest, you're probably talking 50 to 70 miles, maybe, but more like 50. Mm-hmm. And in its narrowest spot in Israel, it's around six to seven miles. The first day we go, we stand on Mount Carmel. And if it's a clear day, you can look to the west and you can see the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And then you turn and look the other direction and you can see the hills of Jordan. Jordan, yeah. And it's one of the early aha experiences yeah. for people. They realize, this is really small. yeah. And from Carmel, you read the great story of the prophets of Baal and the Asherah, the, the Mount Carmel Catholic monastery there with the statue to? Yeah, the statue to Elijah. They, now, they need to take that statue and move it down into the valley to be to be authentic, but then true, nobody true. would visit it. So There you uh, go. There you go. But it's a remarkable location. Yeah. And then again, I think it was probably, it probably was the first tour there. Of course, a lot of these guides... Uh, have military experience. And this gentleman was rather old and he had fought in the Six Day War, allegedly. One of our other guide friends who's a comedian says, what is it about tour guides? They all fought in the war and became tour guides? (laughs) (laughs) But he pointed out the airstrip below. Mm -hmm. And you taught me about Har Megiddo versus Armageddon. And you said, there's no battle. At Armageddon. Yeah. Charlie Dyer has this unique opinion that there's no fighting at Armageddon. So why is there no fighting at Armageddon, Dr. Dyer? Well, because that's in Revelation 16, when God uh, gathers the nations for the ultimate battle, he says they gather at the hill of Megiddo, Armageddon. But the final battle in the Old Testament, whether it's Daniel chapter 11 or Zechariah 12 and 14, the ultimate battle when Jesus comes back is in Jerusalem. The enemies are attacking. And I, I look out at the, the Jezreel Valley and say, from a military strategic point of view, it's the perfect uh, staging ground for the army, for the final push. You've got a harbor in Haifa. You've got the international highway heading off to the north. 
You've got one of the few crossing points of the Jordan River just to the east there at Beit Shan. And with the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan gathering their forces together, uh, this is the staging area uh, right by the hill of Megiddo. And then they begin their push down and, and their final piece of conquest that ends up in Jerusalem. So what's the valley that's going to run so deep with blood? It's one of two valleys in Jerusalem, I think. The Kidron Valley, which is just between the Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, or there's a new valley God's going to create when he splits the Mount of Olives into. And they also have the Hinnom Valley there. But one of those valleys, I think, is is where the battle is, and that's where the blood will run that high. And, and actually, it makes more sense. If you look at the, the uh, Jezreel Valley by Megiddo and say, if I had you know four and a half, five feet of blood, filling this valley, I've probably crushed every single person in earth. And, yeah, uh, it's a and, big valley. And, yeah. yeah. But down Jerusalem, okay, now that makes sense. If it's a massive army attacking, I could have, because uh, it's a very narrow valley and, and steep, you could have blood to that depth. I got to wonder, again, correct me, you're the, you're the professor. Um, you've got so much imagery with the sacrificial system on Mount Moriah You've got the fresh water source when Christ returns. It's going to be the living water, so they don't have to clean this with basins, literally or metaphorically. So it would seem there would be not the blood of the Savior, which was the needed blood, but the false blood, if you will. I mean, again, I'm probably going yeah. way too far, but it, it would be, of course, anywhere in Israel. But it would seem more fitting that you're talking about, okay, this was the center of Israel's worship where sacrifice occurred every day. And now you're going to see the ultimate sacrifice of the enemies of Christ. Yeah, I I, I don't think you're pushing that beyond uh, beyond its boundaries. Talk a little bit, and I know you and I have, have not gone into geopolitics even in our trips much because you have a, a focus more on. Let's talk about what Scripture teaches us about the land, and and I love the way again you taught me. Uh, archaeology does not prove the Bible; the Bible proves archaeology. But at the same time, we do have geopolitical issues. They have from the beginning of time, the cave of Machpelah, the dispute over the land, the dispute over the purchase of Mount Moriah that when David bought it, and the threshing floor, all these things are continually disputed. And one of the things I try to bring out to our groups is when you think of Machpelah or David's purchase, those in a sense were biblical contract transactions that are recorded in God's word saying, no, this land belonged to David now because I gave it to him and he purchased it. He wouldn't you know, steal it, as it were. And yet, Charlie, so many of our friends disregard all this. They shrug their shoulders at the significance of the land and these contractual agreements in the Scripture and why the land is important. And yet, ostensibly, you've spent 40-plus years of your life saying the land, the land, the land in the book. Yeah. So help help us out when because you know you know as well as I do we have pastor friends that they'll never go and they don't think people should waste their time go to Breckenridge don't go to Israel and why this land is so important biblically and why Doctor Dyer would say no you can't ignore it you need to know the land to know the Bible and that for me is number one but beyond that the geopolitical you have people who have offered their solutions for the Middle East presidents have made their proposals none have succeeded. Pastors have, have weighed in on what they think should happen. Nothing happens. And the question is, why is it? And it's because the land ultimately isn't a just a geographical problem. It's a theological issue. It's The real question in the Middle East is, whose God is God? Mm -hmm. And if the God of the Bible is the God of the universe, and God has made promises, and he promised that land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
God made these promises. The real question is, is God's word to be fulfilled or is Satan looking for an alternative? And I think what we're really seeing in the whole Middle East crisis is a debate over God. Is it the God of Islam or the God of the Bible who ultimately will win and whose, whose word ought to be obeyed? Getting there, if people go to Israel and come back saying, man, this place is insoluble. There's no solution. They're, they're miles ahead of most journalists and most politicians yeah. because it's, it is complex. And to be there is to understand how complex it really is. One of the, uh, and of course, there's lots of iterations, but one of the sayings is if you ask uh, five rabbis a question, you'll get eight answers. And, and it seems like when it comes to geopolitics, and of course, you and I know Palestinian Christians, we know Arab believers, and when you spend time with them, they have a very different take on the land. I remember jousting with a guide going, wait a minute, and he looked at me and One of my professors, Dr. John Hanna, pulled me aside and said, Michael, it's their home, not yours. And I was like, okay, lesson learned. You don't don't argue with them when you're over there about what the Bible says versus what, what they tell you about the land. But point being, it's so contentious. From the day it began, it was contentious. The surrounding nations, it was contentious. God told them it would be a fight. And to me, there's sort of an irony there, as you just said better than me. It's insoluble until the king returns. Yeah, the, the one nice thing is, and I think this is what we can bring to bear in the Middle East, we can come in and, and affirm what God did say regarding the Jewish people and what he promised them. At the same time, I can go to the end of the book of Ezekiel, and when God fulfills his promise to Israel, he says also, and, and the aliens who want to live among you yeah. can live among you. Yeah. So it's not Israel and Israel only and everybody else leaves. There's a another side to the issue, and and we can come in as the peacemakers and point out ultimately the it's the Prince of Peace that can provide the the bridge between the two sides. Which is why I go back to the Abrahamic Covenant. Probably one in five sermons and six sermons that mentioned, look, you've got to understand the Abrahamic, the Davidic, the New Covenant. You've got to understand these covenants because he said you will be a blessing to just the Jew. No, to all the all world. The yep. And and the, you and I know the Hebrew well enough to say that's an imperative command. He didn't have an option you will be a blessing, be a blessing, go do what I tell you to do. And there's a reluctance on a lot of these, probably every prophet and leader from Moses down. Um, but to, to think about the connection back to Abraham. And then, of course, you know, you and I would talk about the unfortunate false teaching that is Ishmael as the Muslim you know, view of who Abraham is versus mm-hmm. Isaac, the chosen son. And again, back to that sacrifice, that God called Isaac as the sacrifice? Is the Jewish lineage there, therefore substantiated? Or how much longer was it when Muhammad had his flight? Was it 600? Yeah. <laughs> a little yeah. bit of a history gap there that we can't. We got, got to kind of ignore if you're going to hold on to Islamic theology. Uh, and we're winding down on time. Talk to me a little bit about uh, replacement theology. Because you and I use that phrase, but again, a lot of our friends maybe don't understand what this means and why it's important to understand. God made promises to Israel, but when Israel disobeyed, God finally said, okay, you have violated what I said. The promises are no longer yours. He then gave those promises spiritually to the church. And so we are the new Israel. We're fulfilling God's promises to Israel in a spiritual way. The problem with that is twofold. One is the Muslims say, that's you're exactly right. And since you failed, God has now given it to us. Mm. So Islam is the ultimate replacement theology. 
But biblically, the main problem I have is the one place in the New Testament where the writer Paul says, let me tell you, the relationship between Israel and the church is Romans 9, 10, and 11. Mm -hmm. And he ends in Romans 11 by saying that, yeah, there's a problem. Yeah, yeah, you're receiving blessings that God had intended for Israel, the forgiveness of sin, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But God is not done with Israel. And he ends up quoting scriptures, uh, and he quotes from the New Covenant and the return of the Messiah and says, all Israel will be saved because God's gifts and his calling are irrevocable. I love that passage because- Great word. Yeah, he's saying when God makes a promise, God doesn't renege on his promise. Well, I'm glad of that because God promised us heaven and forgiveness of sin. And if God could break his promise to Israel, what's to say he won't break his promise to us? But Paul makes it clear, God doesn't break promises. I agree, but you said all Israel. Yeah. And and uh, we have to understand that in context. Okay. Uh, all Israel doesn't mean every single Israelite who ever lived. They, they don't get a free pass to heaven. But what he's saying is all Israel means the, there will be the national fulfillment of the promises God made to that nation. Uh, again, I go back to Ezekiel. God talks about a time when he's going to bring all the land back. But in that passage, he says, but I'll purge out the rebels among them. Those who choose to disobey, even at the end, God will judge. But there's going to be a time when Israel as a nation is going to have a spiritual awakening and nationally is going to come to faith and, f and fulfill those promises God made to them. Three questions. One, what would you tell a pastor who's never been, doesn't really have interest, not willing to go? What would you tell a person who they're afraid to go and I'm on the fence, my wife doesn't want to go, I want to go? And finally, um, why would you go back more than once? If you want to know the Word of God, uh, you know, it's, it's as much God's will for you to go to Israel as it was to go to Bible college or seminary. It's not that you have to go, but if you want to know the Word of God, you will know it better going. For the person who's afraid to go, I say, well, yeah, there is some danger. But once you get to the airport here in the States, most of the danger's over. Statistically, you're more in danger driving on the highways here in the States than you are making it to Israel. Uh, and uh, you will find that it's incredibly safe once you're there. And to the person who wants to go, you know, possibly going back, going to Israel, once you've been one time, you'll get it. And it's like, uh, it's like eating your first potato chip or eating your, your first uh, uh, piece of chocolate. Uh, the, there's something that happens in your brain that says, I got to do this again. And it yeah, just changes your life. Experience the land of the book, a life-changing journey through Israel, Charles H. Dyer, his newest book. It will have all the information in the show notes, as always. And again, as I've encouraged folks, and again, Charlie's been a big part of influencing me. We often talk about it's not just the Bible becomes uh, in color, it becomes holographic, it becomes 3D, because you do stand on the Sea of Galilee and say, this is a lake. And you do go to places, as our friend Ronnie Cohen says, this is ground zero, whether it's the Southern Steps or somewhere where the feeding of the 5,000 took within a hundred yards, give or take, or the garrison demoniac, you go to these places and you say exactly where we are, give or take a few feet, maybe this is it. It does blow your mind as far as all these stories you've read in, your, in the scripture. They don't only come alive, but you sit there and go, I'm here in 2023, 24, 25, and I'm right where this occurred. And God, let me be born. Let me come here. Let me be introduced to not only the land, but the Word of God promises me eternal life. I wish we would live more for eternity than for the temporary, Charlie. I think Israel does help us that way because it reminds us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Dr. Charlie Dyer, again, his book, Experience the Land of the Book, and we'll also have his other books available in the show notes. Lots of stuff that you can read from Dr. Dyer. Thanks for your time, brother. Always great to see you. Give your bride a hug from Cindy and me, and God bless you as you continue ministering to so many folks to open the land and the book. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.